Welcome everyone to Northview's Extra Podcast. This is episode number 204. This is Darcy hosting this episode and with me as always is Ezra. Hello. Andy. It's a pleasure. Really? Well, yeah. (laughs) Greg. Hey. Jeff. Hi. Jeremy. Hello. Now, all That's you... all you're here from Jeremy for the rest of the time. Yeah. Podcast, by the way. And Kyle is not here. <laughs> I, don't know where, I don't even know where Kyle is. I might surprise you today, Andy. Yeah. I think Kyle's in Dallas. Oh, he already said oh. Oh. <laughs> I think he went, I, I don't know. I think Kyle went for a trip to Texas for some reason. I don't know why. He does that periodically. He, he needs does. to be renewed. In the U.S. periodically. <laughs> he needs to have... Uh, he he has to go to all the way to Texas oh, for yeah. that? He needs well, to go and eat Chick-fil-A. Mm-hmm. Oh. No, he went to Babe's Chicken. Can I, can I tell you something about Chick-fil-A? Yeah. And when I was Andy, living in Southern California, <laughs> when I was living in Southern California, if it rains, you can go get free food at Chick-fil-A. Really? Yeah. What? If it rains. In California. In California. Yeah, well. So now it's still the case? It's still the case. We, we did it all the time. Whenever it rained, we'd go, and I think you buy... You, you have to pay for one meal and you get the, your other meal free, something like that. Yeah. If it rains. If it rains. Wow. So check the forecast before you head to California for your you're, holiday. Yeah, when you're in your Disney holiday, go to I would always think that rains. Disneyland in the rain would be the best time to go. Mm. Because, yeah. like, people would just leave. And yeah, all the, all the looky-loos wouldn't be there. Yeah. And you could go and ride the, rain, ride the rides. They hand out ponchos. Do they? We did, we did a They six hand flags. them out? For uh, free? That's probably, you're right. <laughs> it was probably $15 for a plastic bag poncho. No, I went on a road trip one day with, or one time with some buddies, and we went to Six Flags, and it was pouring. And they, I think they gave us ponchos at Well, that's Six not Flags. Disney. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yes. that is an important distinction, yeah. actually. Dude, Disney's collecting the water from the rain, putting it in bottles, and selling it to you. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's Mickey it's Mouse Mickey on water. And they put they do they put a picture of Mickey Mouse on it. Six <laughs> bucks here for a bottle of water. Yeah. Oh, but a little bit of the Magic Kingdom in each bottle. If we're talking uh, <laughs> Southern California, <laughs> best restaurant Southern California. Jeff, in and out. Come on. In come and on. out. In no way. Are you kidding me? Stacked. In and out. Stacked is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Stacked is. A, but I mean, like that you can have. Ford and you know yeah because stacks so expensive with the what? with all their crazy nine dollar hamburgers and and eight dollar toppings. What do you? Oh, I ate there. The only thing is you order from an iPad. Big deal. You know, once I had hamburger. a bad experience at In and Out, it was pretty good. The name actually <coughs> was fairly literal, and, <laughs> and it's just never been the same. <laughs> oh goodness. We digress. You can email him at Steiger. <laughs> All right. Um, a question uh, just actually came in uh, a few minutes ago, and uh, here it is for you. Hello, extra people. I was wondering if Jesus could ever get sick. If Jesus was sinless throughout his life, would that mean he would be subject to some of the consequences of living in a fallen world? I know that Jesus' risen body is perfect and would not be subject to disease. So during Jesus' ministry, could he have gotten food poisoning or the common cold? Sure. Absolutely. Okay, moving on. You know, look, he could get beaten by wicked men, couldn't he? He bled. He died. He wept. It's mm. interesting. Some people would say, or the question, did, could Jesus have ever died? I think it's the same question as well. If, if he yeah. wasn't under, you know, that's the question. Is he, was he under the curse? Yes. Mm. And, the, and the question is, it seems, though, that he submitted himself to being under the curse. Right. So this has to do with the hypostatic union. 
That is a phrase that you should learn Boom. in Christian history. Hypostatic union means that Jesus was fully God and fully divine. Full, uh, sorry, fully divine, fully human. 200%. I know where you got that from. Yeah, yeah I remember that's, that. That's, that's, he, um, that, that's what we, we, we mean by that, the hypostatic union. He's, he's fully God, fully human, which is funny because you hear questions like that, and I'm not criticizing the questioner, but many times these questions come up because we struggle to understand how, how could a fully God, how could, right. how could God get sick? Hmm. And that's the mystery of Christ. It's one of the great miracles. It, well, it is probably the greatest miracle ever is that, that God became a, a man. Um, and so, so we, had, we struggle with all sorts of things like this. You have also questions that people raise constantly about, well, okay, but could, how much did Jesus know? Because you have passages of Scripture that seem to say that, you know, only the Father knows the time or the hour, mm-hmm. right? But also you have ideas of Jesus knowing in their hearts that they believed this, whatever. Mm-hmm. So how do we work that out? He knew did, what they were did, thinking. Did the Spirit reveal to him what it is that they were thinking? Maybe. Maybe Jesus knew. There's a theory called kenotic theory or kenosis, just the belief that Jesus set aside his um, the, the voluntary use of his divine attributes. Some From of them. Philippians chapter two. Philippians two. It's the word that means empty. So Jesus emptied himself and became nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what does that what does that mean? I mean, in the context of Philippians two, it means that he didn't try to hold on to his status as you know as God, not his godhood. Listen, he did hold on to his godhood. Just he did, did he hold on to his rights and status as that. That's what that means in the context of Philippians 2. But does it mean more than that? Can we, can we understand the hypostatic union through this kind of kenotic theory? So there's a whole bunch of talk about that. And at the end of the day, you kind of have to throw your hands up in the air and say 200%. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, he's fully, fully man, fully divine. And so some people get frustrated, though, if you make Jesus sound too human because they're saying that's beneath his, his royal holiness. Mm-hmm. And other times, people make him sound uh, so Divine holy that, he's that, he's, <laughs> that you're like, was he, is, he a, is he a guy you, you, like us, you know? Uh, that people would be able like to us? see him and hear the things he said, and they were like, uh, aren't you Joseph's son? Right, which mm. is a passage that actually they did. That's how they responded. So whatever your viewpoint about Jesus is, you have to recognize that some people, like you and me, saw him, heard him teach, do a miracle or whatever when he's 30 years old and go, are you the kid from the, down the street? You're the carpenter's boy. Right? Yeah. I don't think I believe that you're the son of God. I mean, come on. Hmm. You used to pick your nose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, it's not wrong or sinful to think about Jesus as a human being. And suffering the problems that human beings do. Bleeding, mm-hmm. uh, having bowel movements. Mm-hmm. Th- these things are true. Hunger. All true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Getting now, sick in this case. Now, isn't, isn't there a teaching, and I, I, I'm totally going to mess this up. I don't know which way it goes. But that on the cross, he became fully God or fully man on the <laughs> cross. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of messed up teaching about about this. There's some um, Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism is that the right phrase? And I can't yes. remember exactly what the. I think the viewpoint of that is that there's no that Jesus, human, divine. He has he, he has a human nature and a divine nature, and they they're totally separate. 
And so sometimes he's human and sometimes he's divine. I think that's Apollinarianism. So why was it important that on the cross he was fully God, fully man? Well, it's, it's important that he was fully man so that he could actually be our representative, right? And stand in our place in the same way that Adam was a fully man and was our federal head, right? Mm -hmm. So he was a representative for the human race and we all fell in Adam. We're all sinners. sinners and so, but we're all saved in Christ or we're all given opportunity mm -hmm. for salvation in Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important that he was God because the only sacrifice that would appease a infinitely holy God would be an infinitely holy and worthy sacrifice, correct? Exactly. So mm -hmm. he has to be divine. The only, the only thing that will satisfy the wrath of God is to punish God himself. Mm. A blameless So, so this, is, this is the, the mystery and the beauty and, and the, the kind of thing that causes Paul, for example, to break out into doxology, to, to worship and say that, that it's so amazing that God in this mystery of Christ, and he tries to explain that several places in the scriptures about how fantastic the mm -hmm. things like the hypostatic union are. You're supposed to result, the result of this is not to, not to say, oh, it's not true, but to walk away with your mind blown and say, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, right? Who has been his counselor? Cool. You weren't talking about, were you thinking <coughs> of Arianism? <coughs> no, not Arianism. Apollinarianism. Am so I right? Apollinarianism is where he had a human body, but a divine mind or nature. And then Nestorianism was the, he has, there's two persons right. at work. Right. So I always get them mixed up. There's a whole bunch of different ways that people try to um, overwhelm Christ's divinity mm -hmm. with his humanity and his humanity with his divinity. And they try to work it out. And the truth is 200%. Yeah. yeah. Greg, you appear to be good at definitions. Well, so. I was able to find it. <laughs> uh, so what is the difference between biblical theology mm. and systematic theology? Yeah, I mean, I think different people would probably define them a little bit <coughs> differently. Depends on who's using the words, exactly. isn't it? But I would, so here's my go at it. Uh, biblical theology is the task of understanding what what an author is saying in a specific book. What, what's their intent in the book that they're writing? What are they trying to communicate in that time? So a biblical theological question would be, what does John have to say in his gospel about the person of Jesus? Okay. A systematic theology is something that is developed when it's done well out of biblical theology where you're assembling all the different pieces that you learn from your biblical theology and you're assembling a consistent or a, a synthesized version of your theology to say the bible says that jesus is dot 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 so systematics will say that the, the scope of the biblical teaching says this whereas biblical theology would say paul in romans says this so as one right or wrong no, or you need them better than the other you need, them both. Right. you need them both they're both built upon the the premise so biblical theology is built upon the pre premise that the, the, the Bible is authored by humans. And systematic theology is built upon the premise the Bible is authored by God. Both of those are true, by the way, mm -hmm. right? Spirit-inspired or God-breathed is the language. Spirit-inspired humans wrote the Bible. Mm -hmm. So biblical theology is trying to understand what the humans meant in their context, historical, cultural, grammatical, grammatical. 
But systematic is saying, yes, but the Holy Spirit is speaking through these different humans. And so we should be able to assemble what all of these different humans say, understanding them in their context, of course, because that's how he spoke through them, and understand what God thinks about a particular matter. Most people's questions are systematic theological questions. Mm. I wonder what the Bible says about sex. Mm. I wonder what the Bible says about Christ. I wonder what the Bible says about... Slavery. Slavery. I wonder what the Bible says about women. I wonder what the Bible says about uh, divorce. These are all systematic categories. Now, I'm going to go to certain passages of Scripture and try to show you, but I'm going to try to assemble a coherent theology based upon those passages. Systematic, as Greg said, systematic theology, when it's done well, starts with biblical theology. Okay? But it's wrong to say, probably wrong to say that you can separate them so cleanly. Right. Because... If I come to a passage of Scripture, and I know that there are five other passages of Scripture that are kind of like it, that I walk into that passage with already a systematic kind of understanding of the text. And so that does influence the way I read it. And, there is, and that's fine, as long as you're not trying to make that text say something different than it actually says in its context because you want to make it fit into your systematic category. So that's the great fear of people is, you know, if you point out, if, you, if you, you're a critic of biblical theology, you'll say, look, biblical theology is all well and good, but you're ignoring the fact that the Bible coheres and has, says broad things, the Spirit says broad things about these subjects. Mm. If you're a critic of systematic theology, usually you're saying you're just going to drop your systematic theology on top of each one of these passages and make it go away. And that's absolutely true. Mm. And to be honest with you, most people are system, systematic people. Almost all of us are when we come Very to the Bible. So, so you've got to be really careful to take your lens. Try to, try to recognize your lenses when you're reading a particular passage of Scripture and say, okay, let me try to read this fresh and, yeah. let it, and just let it say what it says and try to understand the author in its context, even if I don't like what, it means. what it's going to say. But that's where you say good systematic theology right. starts with biblical theology. Right, so I'll give you an example. I, I, we teach a, a Thursday morning theology class um, a number of us. It used to be Ezra, Greg, me, and Kyle, but now Ezra decided that he doesn't believe in that sort of thing. He doesn't want to help people with that kind of thing. So Respect. instead, it's Greg, me, and Kyle now who teach it. So it's 6 o'clock. For the record, Ezra rolled his eyes. Yeah. It's, at, it's 6 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. So we teach this class based in a systematic theological textbook, right? But the other day... I, I took the opportunity to teach a, a passage, uh, Romans chapter 7, okay, which is a passage that says, I do what I want, don't want to do, and I don't passage. do, and stuff like that. It's often cited by people saying, see, this is the struggle that Christians have in their lives. That's, that's the normal struggle Christians have is that we don't do what we want to do, whatever. And I argued and continue to argue, and I'm 98% sure that I'm right about it, that it's actually not about a Christian. It's about a Jew, Paul, in fact, as a representative Jew who is struggling under the old covenant trying to keep God's law. Now, you say say that to people and they freak out. I actually think it's not even that hard to see in the context. In fact, I feel like if I could give you, if you give me 20 minutes, I can show you from the context of Romans 6, 7, and 8 that that's exactly what he's talking about. Mm. It's actually explicit in places. So, I say this, but when people, 
And I've taught this in so many different places. I wrote my master's thesis about that very subject. So when I share my master's thesis or I talk about it to people about the exegesis of Romans chapter 7, the biblical theological approach mm-hmm. that you would take to Romans 7, read it in its context, find out what it means. When I say that, most of the pushback I get from people is, well, that can't be because of, and then they fill in all sorts of systematic theological reasons for that. How can somebody who doesn't know God want to obey God in any way at all? That, well, where'd you get that from? Well, I got it from my systematic theological category that I developed from other passages that sound somewhere like that. Mm. That's this, you know, then they'll give a label to it. And I have a good friend who's been a pastor who said to me, well, that's the Arminian view, he said to me. And I said, I don't really care what view it is on it or not. I, it, that's what the passage says. So this is common. And so I'm interacting with some people in the class even right now, some of you probably listening, and trying to, to get you to see that before you establish your system, before you establish what the passage says, by, by loading your systematics on top of it, by right. dropping it on top, let's just, let's just read it mm-hmm. first in its context and then let it determine what our systematics are going to be. It might bring a different nuance to our systematic theological understanding than, yeah, this happens all the time to me. Mm-hmm. Like First Corinthians chapter three, I, I teach regularly, which people often take as a as a justification for a rewards doctrine that they see throughout the scriptures. And I argue that there's no such thing as a rewards doctrine, not at least the way that people argue. And that probably just elicited all sorts of what's from people who are listening. But I try to show that First Corinthians three is not talking about rewards for everybody. It's talking about rewards for apostles or those who follow in their footsteps in teaching and building on the church. It's not even hard to show. But I gave that, I gave a message recently at a leadership conference about that passage, and I got a five-page email from a guy saying, no way. Why? Because of all of this systematic stuff. Because what about the rewards doctrine? And I said, well, look, I'm trying to ask you whether or not your rewards doctrine is quite as well founded as you think. So it's a good question. So yeah. There's, this might be helpful. It might not be. Another way to think of this whole area of, of theology, biblical and systematic, is that everyone comes to the Bible with an embedded theology of how they see God and the world just from the way they were raised, right. what they think. Every, everyone comes with an embedded theology. Now the question is, is are you willing to do the work of, of sometimes called deliberative theology of actually looking at passages of Scripture and then having your your embedded theology, what you've always believed to be true, either challenged or affirmed. Right. Are you willing to do the work to challenge your embedded theology? So, so it's not like no one comes to no. this uh, with a clean slate. Everyone no. has a slate that's already full. The question is... Can I set aside, but can I set aside my full slate at least to some degree right. and let the, let, let the text speak as clearly as I, as I can? Or, or as best as I can. Let's all pick on Calvinism for a minute. This is one of my real problems with, with some of the way that Calvinists read the Bible, is that they want to over they, they want to read past passages that seem to, and I do I believe, blatantly affirm that God wants to save the lost. That he wants to save everybody. That that's his desire. So I think I actually think 1 Timothy 2 4 says that. Mm-hmm. So what are you gonna do there? Well, my view is then you have to have that fit within your theology. You have to. Okay, but on the flip side, I would say that, look, every Arminian in the world needs to come to grips with Romans chapter 9. They do. They have to come to grips with the passage Greg was preaching on the other, Matthew 11. You have to. 
If you don't have a, a the, if, if your theology doesn't make sense of it, and you just say, well, I'm just going to leave that by the wayside because I can't, I don't know what to do with it. And you yeah. want to read past it or not even deal with it. Look, you're not, you're not doing it well, right? You're dropping a systematic category on top of it and just kind of wiping your hands of it. But that's not what God says. So you're going to say, well, God says this. No, he, no, he doesn't. He doesn't say that. So you need to come up with a systematic theology that incorporates as much, and, no, I don't even say as much, all of the texts. <laughs> and if your systematic theology doesn't deal fairly with all the texts, you need to say, well, this is what I know, and then this other stuff is, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. And is that hard to say when you're... Yeah. You're supposed to teach and sound like sermon? you know everything. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> so when you, when you guys preach... Uh, a certain passage. Say we're going through a book. Is that more biblical theology? It's then, absolutely or? biblical theology. Yes. Yeah, it has to be when you're going through a book. But when you're doing a whole topic, right? It's more systematic. It's yeah. More systematic. So what you're going to get at our church is probably more of a biblical theology. This is why people get frustrated. For example, when you preach a sermon, for example, let's take faith and works as an example. I, a lady came up to me this weekend. In fact told me that she used to get really mad at me because I, she said that uh, in some sermons I, I, I made it sound like uh, it was necessary for you to obey Jesus in order to be saved. And I said, well, I'd never, I've never said that at all. I've said it's necessary for you to obey Jesus to show you're saved. Hmm. So I'm going to say that works are a necessary outgrowth or evidence of saving, of saving faith. But I'm also going to say that uh, works are not necessary for you to be saved. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I'm saying that they are not the cause of your salvation, but they are the result of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I say both those things. So in some sermons, I'm going to be saying to you, look, you profess something. It doesn't show up in your life. You say, Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're going to say, whoa, that's, that's like heavy. It sure sounds like he's talking about how I need to work this out. Yeah, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, absolutely. But on other sermons, I'm going to say it's free. Absolutely, positively free. been completely done for you by Christ. There is nothing that stands between you and God except your stubborn will. So submit to him. Hand it over and you will be saved. Apart from any works that you could possibly ever do, you come to him and say, I can hand you anything. You've done it all. Those are both true. Absolutely both true. I don't need to, though, in every time I talk about works, try to clarify all the time. And I don't every time talked about faith need to clarify that, oh, well, that, by the way, this has to result in works. Because the biblical writers don't always do that. Mm. that well, was, and that's where everybody has to take everything in the larger did, context of that, what has Jeff preached over the last right, six years. Right. right? Like, so my responsibility, certainly there are places where you're going to try to bring some systematic, hey, but not, you know, categories to it. But I'm, my, God, my job is not to preach a passage and, you know, embed the whole systematic theological framework into it. My job, especially as Mennonite Brethren, this is something the Mennonite Brethren have always been good at, mm -hmm. which is just let the text speak. Hmm. Let it say what it says. Let it press you where it's pressing you. So, so typically then on a weekend, you'd be using biblical theology. Yeah, and I hope that in our small groups, that that's the place where we're bringing systematic thought. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I know on your uh, in, intern class where you yeah. teach theology, you use a textbook called Systematic Theology. Right. 
but I, again, this is my, my point, though, is that we, in the pulpit here, you're going to get a lot of biblical theology. And then I'm hoping that it constructs for you, as you converse with other people, a systematic theology that's based upon what the Bible has to say. Mm-hmm. That's what the best part is. And usually the conversations that follow from our sermons are systematic in nature. Yeah, but what about right, that passage? Right. Yeah, but what about this? And what? Yeah, but what about that? And they're asking all sorts of systematic questions. And that's exactly the way I want it to be. Even some of the questions that come in our podcast are very systematic in nature. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if people say, well, are you guys biblical theology or systematic theology? We'd say yep. yes. Both. Yes. Both. Okay. Uh, another question here. Hi, Extra Team. Congratulations on clearing the 200 episode mark the other week. That's a little four weeks ago. I'm now part of a church which practices a rather unique method of baptism, triune immersion. In this practice, they fully immerse the person once into each person of the Trinity, once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Holy Spirit, believing that this one act in three stages best reflects being baptized into the three persons of the one God based on the command in Matthew 28. They also believe that this was the primary method practiced by the early church being a visible statement against Jewish or other uh, uti- um, Unitarian or Aryan understandings of God's nature. What do you guys think? Oh, of I'd this? love to see the, the historical proof for that. The claim. triple dunk. I just want to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I, <I'm>, <laughs> honestly, let me just say, first of all, just because the early church did something doesn't mean that, that we are required to do it. Just because right. they appro- people oftentimes want to enthrone the early church as being, hey, they were the pure, perfect ones. I'm saying the biblical church, the way that, that the authors present the, bibli- the, the early church in positive lights, those are the things we're supposed to emulate in the scriptures. But just because, I, beca- just because you know uh, the church fathers, and you might say, well, Origen did it this way, or Tertullian did it this way, that doesn't hold any authority for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that I look down on them. I think that's part of our common history, and we need to learn from them and ask why it is that they did that. So, anyway, I'm just saying that when you say, well, this is the way the early church did it, that, oh, oh, okay, the early church believed in a lot of things. A lot of those guys believed in salvation by works. I can show you that by, by their quotes. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to model right. myself after that either. So, I don't know. I'd like to see the historical evidence that this is the way they did it in the I've early church. I have never seen any. I haven't seen that either. But if you can show me the historical evidence, I'll agree with you that, yeah, okay, but it's still not going to be like, well, you should do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg, can you quickly look at Matthew 28? Is there something in there that says this Baptizing is the, them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Yeah, so this is not, you can take this passage to mean that you have to dunk three times. I certainly don't think that that's the intent right. of the author, is that you're, you're baptizing them in the tri- into the name of the triune God. So, when, Darcy, if I want to baptize you, you come to me and I'd say, uh, do you believe in the Lord? You know, do you believe Jesus died for your sins, rose again to your eternal life, and that belief in him alone is, is sub- uh, adequate for salvation? Yes. Well, on the confession of your faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So I can, I can dunk you. Right. But I, I don't think doing it. No, times? I just I mean honestly, I can appreciate the desire these guys have to try to, I don't know, identify each member of the Trinity as if you're gonna. I don't. I just don't see it's necessary. Andy, do you think it's like? Yeah, that's the thing to me is to say that it's necessary. Seems to be would be the problem that I would have. Wouldn't you think it would be weird though if somebody started saying that this is the way you ought to do? That's a part that I right. get a little bit like, what? Now wait a minute. There's no ought here. Mm. And the other thing too is to me is the very fact that. The early Christians were baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would have made it non-Jewish in and of itself, let alone dunking right. them, the need to dunk them three times. Right. Right. Yeah. I just I just don't know. 
I, we don't. I don't know about whether or not historically that's that's accurate to say that it was the early church. And I also don't know if I just don't see anywhere in Scripture that mm. demands this of me. So if you're going to come and you're going to use the word ought or should mm. with this, I'm going to say, whoa, Nelly, that's that's not that's not biblical. Well, I think from a symbolic perspective too, the, you can make an argument against it, saying that it, it's probably a more accurate symbol of you know dying to ourselves and being raised into new life in Christ to just do it once. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't die. So, so he's, he's referencing Romans six, the image mm-hmm. in Romans six, sir, seems like that, that you go under and you come back up and that's it, but you don't go under again and then back up and under again and back up as if to signify that you, mm-hmm. I don't know, were regenerated three times or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is there, have you ever baptized anybody that you've wanted to hold under a little longer? Yeah, though? absolutely. Yeah, I, I did it last time. A buddy of mine <laughs> waited a really good long time to get baptized. So I told him, okay, I'm going to hold you under for, I told him right before I baptized him. For one, one second for every year that you waited. <laughs> I said, you count to at least five and then you're coming up. <laughs> let, me, let me bring up another one here on baptism. Uh, I went to, I, I'd always been fascinated by Francis Chan, his church back when he was pastoring. Uh, there in Simi, Simi Valley, yeah, California. Simi Valley. Yeah. And I, I, when I was in LA, I went to his church because I wanted to see how he did baptism because I heard you could come dry and leave wet. And, uh, and that was absolutely the case. You could come there, and if you wanted to get baptized, they'd baptize you at the end of the service. Uh, and in fact, they actually had a chair that you could sit in in the baptismal tank. For ease of dunking, which was really, pretty, well, yeah, which is pretty. That's sweet. like a dunk. That's like an actual a dunk, dunk, dunk tank. Chair. Yeah, dunk chair where they, it would swivel did, back and did, then back up. No, but somebody would throw a ball. Would they throw a ball at it? Well, interestingly That's enough, in the name not a of the idea. in the you name of the Lord. Well, the thing is, you don't necessarily have to get wet, right? Because you could just grab hold of the chair and just. It could be it, that could be like the test of whether or not your profession is real. If the ball actually hits and you go under, it's real. That's kind of like well, casting it's, lots. It's like thing, right? she's a witch, right? <laughs> Remember in the we're now in, going in, to throw a ball at Monty the dunk Python. <laughs> it's in a witch tank, right? Well, we're well, bringing it back. Floats, and so <laughs> they're the same. Bringing it back, gotcha. um, but Jeff digress. <laughs> uh, I, I'd always been fascinated by that because I thought, man, I, I kind of liked it at first when I first heard about it. But it was interesting because when I went and watched it, uh, I definitely came out of there thinking this was definitely. Uh, I didn't agree with it actually. Oh wow! When well, I, after why seeing it, why? Why? Uh, because I wasn't 100% convinced that those people knew what they were committing themselves to. Yeah. Mm. That's why. Yeah. And that's why... You're such a Baptist. I know, right? I am a Baptist. But, uh, yeah, so uh, I thought that was interesting. Any, any, have you guys ever heard of that or any thoughts on that one? No. But that's no, why I, we do, but don't baptize small children because no. No. we're not... You know, we want them to make sure they know what they believe. Right. In their defense, though, they did take those people into the back and they would meet with an elder... Uh, oh yeah, quickly. So quickly. You, don't, you, know, don't, yeah. Yeah, you don't know what's during going the service, on. and then they would come out. And get back I mean, I imagine it. his defense of it would be, "Hey, look at the you know the Philip on the road to Samaria, mm-hmm. the Ethiopian eunuch the says, Ethiopian I believe,' and then Paul, he gets dunked. Paul's going to Damascus <laughs> yep. with the right. eyes. Yeah. Was Paul like, baptized? Yes. Right off the road of Damascus to Damascus, he, he goes into Damascus, goes to Ananias' place. Uh, was it after the scales fell off his eyes or before? Right. I think it was, uh, it might have been right after his baptism that the scales fall. Oh, there it is. All right. Well, here's another question. If Ezra's wrong on that, uh, I think we should uh, we should actually hold him up to, like, heresy trial. Don't <laughs> you think? Good to me. The, like, he's a pastor. Snake. He should know that. And he proclaimed, I just ask questions. 
Did totally. you see that? I ask questions, and so I'm I'm free from yeah. any kind of accusation. <laughs> I just ask uh. questions. And just so you know, I don't know if you can. I don't think you can buy a baptism chair on Amazon.com. I've been looking. Have you? <laughs> so I don't know. We're gonna have to get Dave Berg to build yeah, us. Super one. Dave could build one. Dude. By the way, we got what do we got? Fifty-one baptisms coming up in June. June twentieth. Wow! Wow! Boom! <laughs> is that here at the church or is yeah, that? They're gonna get no. They're no, up at Camp, Camp Luther. All right. Hatsic. Which I've Lake. made Hatsic jokes Lake. about already. For those of you who don't know, so the Lutherans, the Lutherans, it was really the Roman Catholics and and the Lutherans who were really angry at the Anabaptists for rebaptizing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the Lutherans used to kill them by drowning them. Uh oh. So. I think it, I was making a joke at our mission campus the other day about how funny it was that Camp Luther was hoping hosting our baptisms, and I said, I hope that goes well. <laughs> so let's just hope the Lutherans uh, are a little more gracious than they once were, eh? Oh, mercy. The problem is it's in Lake Hatsik. So I don't know, is there an over-under on uh, how many people with swimmer's itch we're going to have after that? <laughs> we should do an over-under for... Do they for should, we they should get tells off immediately. We should just baptize them in the medicine for swimmer's itch. <laughs> That's the parting gift. Yeah, here's yeah. some cream. Here's Everyone gets a gift bag. <laughs> little certificate. Uh, we'll let you more. Leeches, we'll let you know more about uh, when that's coming. But that'll be a great, uh, a great time together. And Camp Luther is just, yeah, on Lake Hatsik, just outside Mission, kind of right. Yep. Um, so if you have any more questions, send them to extra at Norfu.org. Here's the next one. Please outline for me your position from plain reason and from Scripture on how Christians should relate to war versus uh, pacifism. Should Christians support a just war? Should Christians themselves participate in what is considered a just war? So what do we do with war? By the way, they're getting that from Augustine, who came up with just war theory. Which is? Well, basically, he worked out this idea of what would be uh, a, just, a just war. And in fact... Uh, Christianity Today did an article. Like seven, I think there's seven characteristics. Greg can probably Google it. Yeah. If if you look up, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think there's seven characteristics of just the things that make the war just for Augustine. Uh, Which still still impact us today. We still uh, look at Augustine's ideas on just war theory. And in fact, what I was going to say was if you Google, Christianity, Christianity Today a couple years ago did a whole... Um, the whole thing on it yeah. and how it's still impacting the culture today. It does actually because uh, ethicists often use Augustine's just war theory to, in, especially in the states, as a, as a justification right. for whether or not they're going to the war, which has caused them a lot of trouble actually in the uh, Iraq War. I remember uh, what was it, 2003, when that started the Iraq War. Yes, I'm right. I don't know. 2003, I think it was. And I remember reading about a bunch of Christian ethicists, or not just Christian, but others ethicists from Christian kind of backgrounds who got together and determined that it was a just war, which caused a lot of ruffles because one of the one of the tenets of just war theory is that you cannot be, it cannot be uh, incited. You 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 can't be the first strike. Uh-huh. It's only ever reactive. Just war is only ever rea- and a reaction to aggression by another. And so they were trying to argue in the states, oh, well, actually the aggression was against us through uh, the, the 9-11 stuff and a few other reasons that they came up with. And so people were like, eh, I don't know. Which is one of the problems with just war theory, ultimately, is that is there, is there one? Even if you establish that, right. there was a ju- that there is such a thing as just war out there, are there any just wars? 
even World War II, which sounds to us like it might get a little bit close to it, right? But even notice the when we went back to Iraq the second time and just all the circumstances. We being were, the U.S. or you? Sorry, the U.S. Uh, well, I, I was looking at I didn't Jeff. go. <laughs> <laughs> well, when the U.S. went back, right, they, they, they spend a lot of time even now trying to justify that war. Yeah. Yeah, and then they, they try to do it based upon the, the threat, the weapons of That's mass right. destruction, destruction and these sorts of things. And anyway, one of the tenets of just war theory is that, uh, as I recall, that you can't, the collateral damage, I don't think you're supposed to be any. And so that was the thing. Well, in World War II there was. I mean, yeah. look at you guys. You just, just yeah. uh, oh, the firebombing of Dresden, for example, is obscene what yeah. the Allies did. It was mm. obscene how they, how they acted. That was pure... Uh, undefi- undefiled um, evil. Yeah, they just went and they just the, the the war was basically over. It was just payback. That's all. It was just pure revenge. They just went and dropped all these incendiary bombs all over, carpet bombed uh, the whole area. In fact, this was one of the big issues in the war was uh, in World War II, if you ever want to study it, that is carpet bombing something we should do? Because it's more effective, because you can wipe out large areas, than, than trying to target a one, these right. targeted bombs. The problem is that the winds and everything, they didn't have the technology to target bomb stuff quite like we would today. And so as a result, they said, now we're going to carpet bomb. So was it just now? Hmm. Even though it might have began just, this is my problem with just war theory at the end of the day, is well, that is it, is it something that can actually be worked out? Hmm. And here, Greg actually has what, the, what they are. This, so Augustine had four, and those four have been expanded to seven now. Um, so you have to have just cause. Um, you can't just be trying to capture things that have been taken or punishing people, but um, the innocent life must be in imminent danger, and intervention must be to protect life. Uh, comparative justice is another standard. Um, That's the second one? Second, second one. Um, I'm not going to read each you know, one. Competent of these. authority is the third. Like you can't just do it on your own. There has to be a recognized group. Right intention. You got to go in with the right motives. Probability of success. So you, <laughs> so like, which is funny, very ends justify means sort of thing. But yeah. Last resort, which is a big one. What's the other one? Proportionality. So you can't up the ante in terms of how you right. respond. Carpet bombing of Dresden. <laughs> right. <laughs> so those are the ones that you that that they, that they end up having for it. So you can. But does anybody actually? Well, it's a problem. It's really those? difficult. It's really difficult to if you if you use just war theory as a standard, it's hard to match wars up to it that say, oh yeah, yeah, that was all of those yeah. things. Mm-hmm. One of the things you need to know though is that some, someone who actually holds just war theory believes it's morally uh, not just allowed, but commanded that you go to war in order to protect the innocent if these conditions are met. So. At least that's historically the way that I've understood it. And I'm, somebody might write in and say, oh, no, 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 that's not true. But actually, the way I've understood it, and when I've conversed with people who hold just war theory, they truly believe that, no, actually going to war is actually morally right. And it's morally wrong to be a pacifist in some circumstances. And that's the challenge, I think, to pacifists, right? Is that what are you doing? What does love command you when you see your neighbor being abused mm. and I've you seen, have the ability to stop it through, yeah. through force? I, I, and I, I've seen, as I've pastored in the uh, MB denomination, I've just seen people all over the map yeah. on this question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So it's, it's funny because our, our statements are, our doctrinal statements are, are th- that we should seek nonviolence. And so you should be serving, if you're going to serve in the military, serve in redemptive places like doctors or lawyers or chaplain. chaplain yeah, Nurses, those sorts of things. Doctors, well, cooks or whatever, mm-hmm. but not the guy pulling the trigger, which, of course, has caused all myriad of discussions. Well, aren't you, by being there, supporting the, you know what I mean? Right. So it's a very uh, difficult issue to sort out. And then you have to ask just bi- the big biblical questions, which I think are the most important ones. Or when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, is he saying that to nations or individuals? Which is a big thing. When, when in Romans 13, Paul says that the government has a right to bear the sword, what does that mean? Does that just mean they get to execute judgment upon their citizens? Or do they get to actually, does the government have the right to bear arms in defense of itself? And why, for example, does Jesus not, and total arguments from silence, why does, sorry, John the Baptist not say to the, the Roman military people who come to him and say, what shall we do when he's calling people to repent? Why does he say to them, go and do your job well? Just don't, you know, don't cheat anyone. Instead of saying, get out of the military. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's an argument from silence, mm-hmm. but it is, boy, if there was ever a moment that you would have given the pure pacifist view. They would, it would be there. Yeah. So can a Christian be in... <laughs> oh, man. That's in a loaded I, You know what? I, I, I tend to go with the MBs on this. And, it, like, if I was going to advise somebody, I think, yeah, you can be in the military. I think you should try to find a redemptive place to serve. Alternate service Can, is what can you be it. a sniper and be a Christian? I think so. And I know that that places me in an odd... I think you can. I think you can. Right, by taking a human, like a sniper especially, like you are aiming at, like a well, see, carpet I'm, bomb I'm and you're hitting everybody, but a, a sniper, right. you're aiming you're at aiming somebody the guy's head. I'm, see, I'm, I'm justifying that by saying that I, I just know a bit about Roman authorities. And I know what, you know, when, G, when Paul says, those of Caesar's household greet you, I, that's what he's referring to, is people in who, who are doing... Rome's business, and the Romans were very uh, strict in their in their attempts to try to squash rebellion and uphold the, the law. But yeah, the second, yeah, and sometimes that meant going to war against other nations. In fact, they did that mm-hmm. quite mm-hmm. frequently and took over lands against the barbarians and others. And so, like, I, I don't, I'm, I'm connecting some dots there, yeah. and I'm assuming that these guys would would be part of, of that. I mean, the Philippian jailer, for some de- to some degree, I mean, he's, he's not told to stop being a Philippian jailer. That's, again, an argument for silence. But That's yeah. a tough, it's a tough one, for sure. There's no, there's no biblical, totally, to. there's no biblical evidence to say that those who came to faith in Christ actually turned away from their jobs in those from places, their from their soldiering. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's just not evidence to suggest the other way either, mm. right? That they that they didn't. So we're kind of left open when it comes to that. But you are left with the words of Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount, which some take as being hyperbolic, uh, exaggeration for the sake of effect. Good fun. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Something light to end on there. <laughs> no, amen. So I have a friend... Um, who used to, whenever he'd meet a pacifist, he'd punch them to see if they really were. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I knew a guy in the MB Church who just who said even if he saw his wife being beat, he would he still wouldn't intervene. And I like I've seen the, the, both oh, extremes. Yeah. And then I've seen people in the MB Church that aren't pacifists at all. It's been interesting. Yeah. yeah. But yet the MB position is one of not, pacifism. No, it's not pacifism. It's I mean, nonviolent resistance is the language. I think that's it used. is. It is. It is. It is tough to see to watch, say ISIS do what it's doing, and you have the power and the means to stop some of that evil. Mm-hmm. Would you choose not to? Well, this is the thing that's this haunted. This is a tough question. Well, Boko Haram. Boko Haram. Like, come into the school and you, you have the ability to stop, to them, stop them by by actually force? Yes. Th- this is what ha- has haunted the U.S., though, is that they watched World War II take place and they didn't participate. They didn't intervene for yeah. quite some time. Yeah, if you if you go into the stuff in World War II, this is, this is the criticism that yeah. Americans often have of themselves is saying we stood by, stood and by now we live when in the we corrective knew. Of it. When we knew what's happening, yeah, and so it's like the overcorrect. Totally, and you wonder if the pendulum has swung so far the other way that, that look, we put if, our noses in everything. Right, if we see a guy who's a bad guy, or we perceive him to be a bad guy, we, we're going to take him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't know that, by the way, unless you live in the U.S. and have studied that history, th- the, like the shame that the U.S. Oh, feels yeah. for how late they mm. took to participate in World War II. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, taking people out. <clears throat> um, see the Avengers yet? I did wow. actually. Wow! Look at that. Good segue, huh? That was amazing. That's no, I've been invited to go to the Avengers tonight. I don't know if I can make it, but I've been told. Uh, well, Andy, I thought it raised a lot of interesting metaphysical ideas that continue to surface, and in fact, can, can't you just go to a movie and enjoy <laughs> like no, do it against bad things blowing up? <laughs> movies, <laughs> movies are crazy. part of our culture, and they and they evoke. The things that our culture is thinking about. It's uh, like a so, paint, so what? Like okay, so you saw the Avengers. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Anybody else seen it? I, I did. Yeah, you did. Okay, so what? What should I be looking Were they for avenged? when I go see it? <laughs> did they avenge? Uh, I, is they this going to be a spoiler alert? No, this isn't a spoiler. No, I actually do a whole. I've been actually well, doing a whole I'm thing. On, no, but I don't know on zombie culture where I just talk about just our our in the media right now movies, TV shows, how we flirt with the idea of what is a person. Yeah. And I tell you, every superhero movie I've watched... Was Ultron a person? That's the question that the whole movie's about. Was he? And and dealing with the morality of Ultron. And where does that morality come from? Ultron's the bad guy? Well, I'm not going to talk about that. But if you you look at artificial intelligence, they wrestle with the idea of morality. And where does it come from? But he was created by Tony Stark, wasn't he? You know, actually, truthfully, so Tony Stark's the I'm, tr- I'm still trying to keep yeah. it serious. Andy's here. not giving away. I'm not giving it. But interestingly enough, I think that they raise a lot of interesting issues with regard to our day and age and the policing issues that we've been facing, was seeing happening in the U.S. and the different riots that are mm-hmm. taking place, mm-hmm. and and how those issues could be fixed if they were policed by robots, for example, and what kind of problems that. Dude, that have you up. seen RoboCop? I know, right? Okay, because that's the didn't. Go, I don't think it, it went doesn't away. go. It didn't well. go well. <laughs> but you're saying that because no. a, a robot would Terminator? would make that the right well decision either. every time. Is that why? Well, or? well, the, and and the fact that uh, that, that it raises deeper questions that I don't want to give away the plot of the right. movie about. But it might ask. I'm, what I'm would, willing to give away the go... plot of the movie. Ultron's a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. I said it. There, there's there also I said it. so. If you're going to go watch it, here's the thing that I would throw into your mind to think about as you're watching it, is think through how the movie is presenting a messiah-like figure. 
it comes up in a lot of different places, um, a lot of different quotes that actually evoke mm-hmm. biblical language. And so when you're watching the movie, think, oh, I wonder they why they're using the that. Bible, this actually. Bottom. That's right. I, just, I think I just said that. <laughs> no, you said they, it seemed like they were quoting. No, they oh, directly quoted. Sorry. Yeah. sorry, I said seemed. They did quote the Bible in places. Is so, Ultron in the Bible then? Well, I don't want to give it away. <laughs> wow. I don't want to give the Bible Jeez, away. Is, is Ultron Judas? Because <laughs> I think he is. You got to watch AD. Can we kick this, him off the Bible the series to know? <laughs> By the way, I've heard really good things about that series. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, why is everybody who's saving the world white? Yeah. You ever notice that? I mean, Nick Fury, I guess, but he doesn't do anything good. Who's Nick Fury? He's the guy with the eye patch, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, the entire oh. adventure else is team white. is white. Have you ever notice that? They're yeah. all Except they're all for the white. Hulk. The Hulk is green, technically. Yeah, but <laughs> he's a white dude. No, but he's he green. He turns green. green. <laughs> Kermit's green. <laughs> yeah. It's also interesting that a lot of the times the enemies are placed in, you know, Eastern Europe. So oh, again, it's always in this, in this one. They're like they're not Russian <laughs> because they're not actually called Russian. But they're kind. But of. everyone's like they're Russians. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just is funny. My big my big takeaway was Greg, in the movie. Look at how they depict personhood and how they wrestle with what it is. Yeah. I, th- I think more and more is an issue. That's a bigger theme in movies in general. That it is trying a, to ask. It's, it's huge it's coming right up now. all all over the place. So do you take umbrage at that? Do you like the use of the word umbrage, Ezra? I'm looking at you. Umbrage at that. That you that you don't you, you don't like the fact that there are, it's all your life is always being saved by white people. And we're doing it for you, Ezra. I just want you to know that we're kind enough to save your life. <laughs> Do Captain I actually have a superhero on under my outfit right now, buddy? Oh, Captain America. It's sure just a speedo. <laughs> I think it's ridiculous, dude. At some point, why can't seriously? Why can't one of those guys be Asian at some point? What Asian well, people aren't going to save the actually, world? Actually, there was if an Asian doctor. Yeah, but in Bruce so Almighty. No, no. In, um, <laughs> yeah, and you're so mighty, God was I'll get you black. Tree, he so was. There you go. But he gave up his... But he, he quit. Gave, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> he was tired of being He quit so a white guy could take the job. <laughs> no, I think, I think um, the, the, anyone who tells a story will tell a story in such a way that the superhero will identify with the person telling the story, with the storyteller. So if you go to Africa, they'll make African movies, mm. and guess who the star will be? A black guy. Superman. Exactly. You go to the Arab world, and guess who the bad guy is? Okay, but the problem is that in Nairobi so today, they're watching Age of Ultron. They were Right? And that's be, my yes. thing. I just think that ultimately, at the end of the day, movies that portray the same kind of heroes mm-hmm. end up having a formative factor over cultures around the world. And they reinforce to all of us that, that the good guys are the white guys, and the black guys oftentimes don't save anybody. And the real superheroes are in Valhalla. And that Thor is actually Australian, by the way. Oh, I thought you were referencing uh, the show Vikings. No. Okay. We just, yeah. I just wanted to sidetrack it. That's all. boy. Thank yeah. you. I think we're done. All right. Are you done, Ezra? <laughs> I am done. You want a last word? Uh, last word. Okay. Point, he, point he's at the pointing at the now. microphone. <laughs> he's yes, getting intense. Right. And he leaned forward. Paul's scales fell before he was baptized. Yes. There you go. Is that what you said earlier? No. Oh, well. Gonna have to burn them. Tune in next time for Ezra's heresy trial. (laughs) Thanks for listening. See you next week.